0: Well, again, we've been we've been going through the uh, the Gospel of Mark, and even uh, even thinking through all that, and, and just spending the time in prayer just a moment ago, and thinking through who this Jesus is and whose name that we pray to. Uh, I mean, this is a Jesus that we've seen over and over again. He is one who has the the power and the ability to do those very things that that he that he commands. Uh, to make the blind see, uh, to heal the lame, to uh, uh, exercise the demons uh, out of those who are plagued by them. Um, and as we will continue to see, even this morning, as we were coming to the, actually to the uh, close to the end of our study through Mark, as we're going uh, just through the first ten chapters, we're, we're looking at his, his ministry in Galilee in particular, um, as he is about to Enter into Jerusalem here in the very next chapter, in chapter eleven. Again, we're we're seeing who this Jesus Christ is, this power uh, that he wields, uh, the uh, the compassion uh, that is in his heart, and uh, and that is something that that we will uh, see again this morning as well. Uh, So again, we're Mark chapter ten. Our text this morning is verses. Uh, 1 through 16, uh, as we're going to be going through a couple of, of, of passages, two different uh, sections there of Scripture, if you will, uh, dealing with, with, in some sense, with, uh, with the home, uh, both concerning marriage and also concerning children. Uh, so I would invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, just an expression uh, of our humility before uh, God's Word. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we see uh, the wisdom and the instruction and the tenderness of our Savior in these words. Uh, Lord, his zeal for for marriage and for purity. Uh, yet, Lord, as well, also the, the tenderness that He has uh, concerning young children. And Lord, I pray that as we look into these things, as we see more of our Savior, I pray, Lord, that You would open our eyes to the truth of who You are. I pray, Lord, that You would give us hearts that are ready to hear from You. I pray, Lord, that whatever distractions we may have, Lord, whatever voices from, uh, from the world, from our flesh, uh, Lord, from outside that are, are seeking to uh, orient us away from your word, God, I pray you would remove them and that you would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Lord, only you have the power to do this, so we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, Jesus is making his final ascent toward Jerusalem. He is heading toward the cross, toward that place that He knows means suffering, uh, what means rejection. He is heading toward the place, though, which means for you and for me, it means for us the victory and the forgiveness of sins as we are even thinking about all that the cross means. So it's no wonder if it He's going to a place that for you and I means victory and for him means suffering and rejection. It's no wonder that upon this final approach, Jesus again finds himself face to face with opposition toward accomplishing his mission. And it comes in the form of the Pharisees, once again challenging him as well as in his own disciples' lack of understanding. Both of these examples Uh, concerning marriage uh, and divorce and remarriage, and concerning the children, both of them represent a way of thinking that is contrary to the mission of God and to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus lays out the continued call for, for you and I toward discipleship, even that we saw last week, that to follow Christ means to follow a road that has obstacles. And that then means reliance upon the one whose name we claim. What we're actually going to notice in our, in our text this morning is that because God's kingdom, His, His kingdom design stands in such stark contrast to the design the world seeks to promote, Let us then stand firm in the arms of the king. The first way we see this contrast in design concerns marriage and the unity which is stressed in this relationship. There are a number of challenges that we are faced with this morning as we see this topic of divorce and remarriage. Number one is how many directions we could simply go in this morning. Uh, we could spend time this morning talking about uh, God's hatred of divorce, which He makes plain in Malachi 2. We could go a, a different direction and talk about all the, the pain and the abuse which has been experienced in the name of staying in a marriage. And to talk about the healing which God offers and the forgiveness which is readily available. Countless other directions we could go in, but that is not the direction that our text takes us. And we simply cannot cover every issue in one sermon. The second challenge is that there are so many nuanced situations when it comes to divorce, which don't lend themselves to easy answers. Many of you are probably sitting here Listening for answers to questions like, was my divorce acceptable? Was my parents' divorce appropriate? Is my friend free to remarry? So many unique scenarios makes wisdom all the more needed when navigating through such a minefield as this one. The answer is not to simply turn a blind eye toward the issue, which churches have done more times than they ought, but to hear from the Lord and apply what He has said, especially His desire for unity in marriage. The first thing I want us to to look at as, as we're looking into these things, is the, the context which is actually so important in this passage uh, concerning Jesus' remarks. Where is he coming from? Why is he going in this direction? What is it that the Pharisees are really trying to do? It's the first thing that we notice here, this, this design for unity. There is this culture of division into which this, this testing, into which this conversation, if you will, is taking place. See, the intention of the Pharisees is made clear they are trying to trap Jesus into giving an answer that would either cause him to sin or to be stumped or to get into trouble. The clarity of their question is more obvious, actually, from Matthew's account, uh, which he likewise uh, records this encounter with the Pharisees when they ask in Matthew 19.3 if it is allowable for a man to divorce his wife, quote, "...for any reason." There wasn't a single group in that day of Israelites nor even of Gentiles that we know about who thought there were zero reasons for a divorce. The question concerned, what is the justification for it? The basis for the Pharisees' question actually comes from Deuteronomy 24, uh, where that is what they are referring to even in their question uh, I think I have the, the passage there. I want to I read it, and I want you to, to hear what's, what's being said here, what Jesus is, is, is connecting to as well, even with his answer. Uh, that when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house... And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, the purpose of this passage, of of what is really going on that that Moses is is writing about in this law, uh, was in order for husbands to be sure that they provided a certificate of divorce for their wives, their now divorced wives. Because this freed her to remarry, which was especially important, obviously, in that day and age in society where there were such little opportunity for women to be able to provide for themselves in the way that they have more opportunity today. Also, it provided the wife a return of her dowry money as well, so that she did not go away empty-handed. Plus, there is an issue of purity that is addressed regarding not remarrying a previous husband if there has been another husband in between. You can only imagine a, a husband and a wife in that, in that world, in that situation where uh, they are divorced and the wife has literally no options of, of what she can do. She cannot even remarry someone else who, uh, another man, there's no evidence for a divorce, and all of that might mean to bring about on the land of Israel and in their community, let alone their own family. And so Moses is telling them they have to have a certificate of divorce, uh, without which uh, there would be so much conflict and so much indecency that would be taking place. And what the Pharisees and what the people of Israel had done is they picked up On this uh, this section here in Deuteronomy 24 of the the finding no favor of her and just some indecency, as it said there, and using it to justify nearly any reason for a divorce. As the language was obviously very uh, kind of ambiguous, kind of broad, it sounds like, any finding no favor and just some indecency. One religious school of Judaism there during that time said, quote, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. Another said, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. So it was allowable by some of these schools of thought within Judaism that you could divorce your wife for just about any reason a spoiled dish, simply someone else that I like more, that I would rather have as my wife. You could divorce your wife for those reasons. Any reason is the context that is going on. Yet some schools were actually strict, plenty strict on the matter, and there were some that said, no, I think it is just adultery that is the only reason for this. And there were great debates on the matter of what were the the reasons that one could divorce. The issue of divorce remarriage was just as tense of a conversation in Jesus' day, perhaps even then in our own, perhaps even more so. And the Pharisees saw their opportunity then to trap Jesus by asking him, what's your position on the matter? Now, as we started this passage, uh, Mark made sure to mention where Jesus was. As the, where this encounter took place. And guess whose territory Jesus was now in? King Herod. You remember from chapter 6 that Herod imprisoned someone, John the Baptist, for speaking out against his marriage with his brother's wife? If the Pharisees could catch Jesus speaking publicly, against King Herod's marriage, then they might be able to get him imprisoned. Or if they are really lucky, perhaps he would suffer the same fate as John the Baptist. The Pharisees saw their opportunity to pounce on Jesus, to end his ministry, and to silence him. They utilized the division which existed concerning the sacred, God-given institution of marriage in order to further wedge God's people from the truth of not only marriage, but from God himself in Jesus Christ. The culture of division here is deep. It is the Pharisees seeking to divide and destroy the work of Christ and his people, And it is at the expense of a topic which greatly divided the people about an issue about division, the division of a home, namely the division and destruction of a marriage. This culture of division is not unique to first century Israel, however. We too live in a world which feels like there are only two options people can have as they relate to you. Either they are your ally, that is, they see the world the same as you, with the same priorities you hold, or they are your enemy. Namely, they value different things, they hold to different priorities. And these are the only possibilities for people. Either you are my ally, or you are my enemy. You're living in a world of exclusivism, of tribalism of division it is no wonder that marriages continue to suffer then in this world in such a world as this that divorce rates continue to rise in fact even with greater earthly motivations for marriages to, to stay together during COVID, uh, you know, with watching kids at home and relying on two-income wages, uh, COVID has actually continued to bring a rise to divorce cases across nearly every nation which had a more strict lockdown laws. That's interesting, isn't it? The more time we're spending then with our spouse, the higher the divorce rates are then climbing and it includes well, as well as there was a 122% increase in web searches on divorce within the last two years. In fact, the dangers for divorce seem to never be higher. We live in a, in a time where Hollywood and Instagram, we have never had... Higher expectations for marriages, for finding our purpose and experiencing the best of life. Yet there are now fewer external forces holding marriage together within society as well as within our own hearts. And all the while, divorce continues to be like an atomic bomb that leaves deep emotional craters and strikes all kinds of innocent bystanders with a fallout. It adds to the explosive chaos and alienation in the world that God has sent His Son to diffuse. Notice how Jesus responds to these divisive Pharisees. It says, "...because of your hardness of heart," He wrote this commandment. It is, in other words, a text of concession, not one of intention. You do not learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. You will not be successful in war if you train by the rules for beating a retreat. The same is true of marriage and divorce. The exceptional measures necessary when a marriage fails are of no help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage. Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue about possible exceptions to it. His opponents ask, what is permissible? And Jesus does what? He points to what is commanded. He highlights these, these texts from, from the Old Testament, even from, from Genesis, from the garden. A few truths which turns the conversation right on its head. It says, God made them male and female. That marriage was always a part of the divine plan. Marriage was not a concession. There was no sin in the world. It was always a part of God's plan. Divorce was this concession Allowed by God because of man's sin, but marriage is not one; rather, a divine institution by God. Like I believe, Jesus is pointing out that woman here and he says that He made them male and female, saying that uh, the, the woman is a sovereign creature, not man's subject that can just be tossed aside because she has spoiled a dish. Not man's subject, but his equal. Even though human divorce preferences and laws would at times seem to disagree with that notion. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That the husband-wife relationship surpasses any other earthly relationship. Even that of a, a mother or father to their child. Marriage is theological it communicates something to us about god the love which christ has for his church that we are a new creation no longer ourselves but now one flesh he says what god has joined together let no man tear asunder it is not man nor woman who is in control and has authority over their marriage but god he Has joined them. So then let us not divide that which has been joined by God. The Pharisees needed to discover what God desired, not what Moses permitted. How dramatically would they and us have their view of divorce altered if we really believed these truths about marriage? See, the wisdom of Jesus is incredible. He tells the Pharisees precisely what they needed to hear and does not undermine either the authority of the Torah, nor does he get trapped into the Pharisees' plan. Yet at the same time, he then goes into the house with the disciples and clarifies the biblical position on divorce. In a culture which practically lives in a no-fault divorce world, Jesus' words must have been startling. One writer, he likened it to, anyone who sells his car and buys another is then guilty of theft by what Jesus is here saying. When he says there that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Just like on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus clarifies there what murder and adultery really are, that they are matters of the heart, you know they, they thought that maybe Jesus is going to go lax on the law of God, but Jesus says, no, I'm not lax on the law of God. I'm going to clarify it for you and show you that it is actually a, a commanding you to do something far greater than you even ever understood. Christ clarifies and tells us that God is more zealous for his holiness than we could possibly imagine. And the Apostle Paul, he picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 7 and describes how not just merely, um, uh, that, that it's not just merely adultery, but that abandonment of an unbelieving spouse is also grounds for divorce. And this is then where the, the justification for, for divorcing an abusive spouse comes in. One whom we are able to consider as an unbeliever if unrepentant. Again, this is not God's design. It is not His plan. However, God, in His absolute mercy, allows us to not endure the full brunt of the consequences of making vows with a sinner he gives us a way out if there is infidelity or abandonment in His mercy. God knows your lowly estate. He knows the troubles that plague you. He knows what it is like to live in a world filled with sinners. He knows what it is like to live in a world whose desire is for your destruction, not your good. And He even knows the sin that fills your heart and drives you away from the Lord and from His best. He knows it because He laid it upon His Son at the cross, who paid it in full. God's kingdom and the path of discipleship, it's not one of, of division, it's one of unity and it's one of faithfulness. But as Jesus also shows us, it's one of dependence, that the kingdom of God is designed for dependence. Look there again with me in verse 13. Because then they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Remember, Israel was an agrarian society. They had a culture of producing, productivity. They cultivated the land for wheat and barley. There were vineyards for grapes and orchards for olive trees. The people worked by the sweat of their brow. The disciples contributed to this society as fishermen who could sell their catch to provide for their families. The culture valued wisdom and knowledge, especially as it pertained to the Mosaic Law. This is why people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were able to rise to such prominence. Women had a difficult time in the town square, but perhaps none were seen so low in this society, perhaps apart from a leper, as a child. They contributed to this society nothing. They were... In their minds, a leech upon society, viewed no better than property, though it was a property that was constantly taking from them without offering much in return, or so they thought. And the disciples saw these children being brought before the Lord and thought, surely this is a waste of time. There are lepers he can heal. Maybe they were even thought of more valuable. There are the lame he can heal. There is teaching that can be done. They acted like bouncers at a nightclub, approving or disapproving of who should come and be healed and touched by their Jesus. It's one encounter I had with a bouncer, though not I. Um, I had gone with some friends when I was in college. We went to a. Uh, a concert. Um, It was a, and I'm sort of ashamed to say this, if anyone remembers Dashboard Confessional. It was kind of like an emo band. I wasn't a fan, but I went with some friends. (laughs) Anyway, but what I do remember about this evening was one of my friends, he wasn't too excited about it either. He got the idea if he wanted to throw an article of clothing up on the stage of his own, and he not only threw this article of clothing up on the stage— but it landed right on the singer's microphone. A security guard came obviously right out to the stage to remove this article of clothing, and it was comical, but my friend very quickly after was running for the doors because they saw him, and he knew he was busted. I felt safe, though my ride had left me. The disciples are here acting as these bouncers, saying, nope, can't come too close can't can't waste his time. Jesus is doing something else right now. You're you're not important uh, enough to be spending time with this Jesus. It seems so bizarre because we live in a world really that prizes children even to an extreme level. Kids are probably in here rolling their eyes. No, you don't. <laughs> it is youth who set the trends for clothing or what is in style. Adults try to look and act more like youths. We even take young people as authorities on issues simply because of their age. Thinking of Greta Thunberg as an authority of climate change simply because she is a youth and passionate about it. However, we also, though, do have an obsession with productivity at the same time. Those that are the most successful are those who produce the most. Who is the best worker? The one who puts out the most sales or has the most production. How do you assess how well your child is doing in school? Well, they are putting out good grades, and I see the production of them working hard, of even the time that they put in. Well, I put in six hours of homework, so it was a a good day. Or even there's something value. Valuable within the workplace of the more time you put in equals the better worker you are, the more successful than than that you should be. And and while there's some some overlap between those those two things, it's this this heightened view of just productivity and, and producing things, production. But these aren't necessarily bad things. They are ingrained in us because this is how... Society works. We're a capitalist nation, right? But that is what makes Jesus' words, though, all the more amazing. Look at what he says to these disciples. It says there to begin with, as they were bringing them to him that he might touch them, and the, disciples, uh, that he, the disciples then rebuked him. They rebuked Jesus. And that same word actually rebuke. If you just look over one page to the left to Mark 8:33 here is where Jesus the same word rebukes Peter after Jesus has said that he's going to suffer and die Jesus rebukes Peter by saying get behind me Satan for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man Jesus in effect, was calling Peter, I mean, doing the will of Satan in what he was saying. He rebukes him, and that same word is used to describe what the disciples are doing to these children. You know, Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Who knows what the disciples are saying, but I don't think it's it's anything too kind, perhaps even some colorful language. And what this does to Jesus as he sees the disciples responding so harshly. says he was indignant. This word, it means to arouse, to anger. It's like to to vent oneself. You have this anger inside of you, that, that which maybe we have a tendency of just kind of brooding over something, and then it just kind of goes out, just kind of vomits up everywhere, and there's a whole wake of destruction in our path. That's the idea with indignant, is that anger that was welling inside, it comes bursting out. Think about the anger that was within Jesus seeing the disciples doing this. Jesus saw their mistreatment and saw not only their value concerning this world, but their value concerning spiritual truths, which we all need to know and understand. And ultimately, what Jesus is conveying through these children is the virtue of helplessness. It is not any virtue found within them. They are not being particularly obedient or faithful or loving. We are not called, uh, 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 there's an expression of being called uh, childish that has a negative connotation. Jesus is saying, "I'm I'm not asking you to act in the same way that a child acts. Instead, he's calling them to be helpless in the same way that society saw them as being able to produce nothing. Jesus says that is what I'm calling you to. The disciples were just previously arguing over which one of them was the greatest. Jesus says, you're all terrible. Be like these children who they're not arguing over which one of them is the greatest. Is only the one who claims nothing of his own not his productivity, not his hard-working attitude, not his honesty, not his endurance, not his perseverance. Nothing to thee I bring, only to thy cross I claim. That is what Jesus calls us to. How often we need to hear this? How often I need to hear this? Even for those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation. We allow this attitude to well up within us that says, God, you owe me. Look what I've been doing. You owe me one. I should be able to have nice things. Don't you know what I've done for you recently? What I've sacrificed? How hard this has been for me? Any virtue which you have, which you think you can bring before the Lord, Even those very virtues are God's gift to you, not what you have mustered up. Do not come to the Lord with a heart of greatness, but like a child come. I even have you consider for a moment an, an image that I believe Christ has given to us that shows this all the more. So, actually, down through the centuries, this has been a a central text for. We think of even baptism. We think of baptism so often in the means of what I am, and this is something that's very popular, what I am declaring to the world, that I am saying something to the outside when I am baptized. But the picture which Scripture conveys is not It's not a proclamation that I am making, but a proclamation which God is making, and He is making it to us. And what He is saying is that to the one that receives Him by faith, they will be washed as white as snow. They will be cleansed and forgiven of their sins. And there is perhaps no greater picture of that truth, I believe, than in covenant baptism, even with an infant that there is this infant in complete helpless estate to contribute anything for their salvation whatsoever, and that the promise of God is then made evident upon them, that the forgiveness of sins is true and real for all who believe should you, like a child, helplessly cry out for the Lord for your salvation? Is God's word to you who can contribute nothing. The world says, produce, produce, produce. Christ says, simply come. The world says, divide, divide. Christ says, one flesh created by God. Who are you listening to? What are the voices that you're hearing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the teaching of Christ. The teaching of Christ, Lord, even in the the midst of the brokenness of this world where there is division, where there is um, a a, a sense of, of misplaced authority, that into that you come and you speak truth even when it is hard to hear. Lord, I pray that you would humble our hearts, God, so that the truths which you desire for us to know, Lord, that they would land, that they would be as seeds planted, and they would grow, and they would flourish, and they would produce much fruit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.